0: Oh, 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 oh. This is Aider and a Better with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? On this week's episode, in our opening statement, we talk about the Cosby mistrial that came out last week. We introduce a new segment called Readback, where we discuss a prior topic. It's going to be an occasional segment. This week, we talk about the Davis hate crime vandalism and the sentence that the judge handed down, specifically probation. In our deep dive, we talk about the Philando Castile shooting and the trial of Geronimo Yan as the police officer, the not guilty verdict, its significance, and some of our thoughts as public defenders about the case. And in the last segment, we do our things. Yeah. So Uh, let's, let's let's
1: get to it. So yeah, the Bill Cosby case. Yeah. You know, it was interesting to me that Bill Cosby went to trial and it didn't get a lot of coverage on my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed, which is primarily my news source. I didn't really see a lot of news about it until the jury was actually deliberating. And then the news started to pop up that the jury was deliberating and that they were deliberating for several days and uh, that there was a possibility of a mistrial. And then it felt like the news of the trial started to come out a bit more. And so I caught up on, on what happened during the trial. I think the result and the process is something we should talk about for a lot of reasons. One of the things that we have heard about Bill Cosby is that from a, from a court of public opinion perspective, It appeared as if he had already been convicted. His name
0: is synonymous with sexual assault now.
1: Yeah. um, You know, the voluminous number of women that had come forward saying that Bill Cosby had uh, assaulted him, assaulted them over several years, but there was no trial. We knew that
0: there were settlements. Yeah. We knew that there were non disclosure agreements, and we knew that the statute of limitations on a lot of these claims had passed.
1: Right. But it appears that this particular alleged victim. Her claims fell within certain statute limitations in Pennsylvania, so it permitted the prosecution to be able to charge Bill Cosby and bring him to trial, which is what uh, happened in this case. And what ultimately occurred is that the jury couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. I think it's one of the misconceptions about about criminal trials for a lot of people that all it takes is one to be found not guilty, but that's not true. For a verdict, uh, it has to be unanimous, one way or the other. So it has to be 12 all 12 agreeing that the prosecution has proved the case beyond a reasonable doubt or all 12 agreeing that the person has been found not guilty because the prosecution hasn't met their burden. But here we had a hung jury and the judge was keeping this jury out for several days, which brought back some really bad memories for me. Do you ever ha- yeah. have you ha- have you had judges keep your juries out even though they're saying they're
0: deadlocked? Yeah, I've had the experience. I've, I've never had something go this long. You know, the judge has to make a call uh, when a jury says we can't reach a verdict. Right. And the question is, is, is that final? You know, are, is this inability to reach a verdict settled? Yeah. Will anything assist you in reaching a verdict? Will pretending that you have the opposite opinion? Uh, will reading more transcripts? Will uh, having more argument? Yeah. Like there's all kinds of tools. They're not great. You know, more jury instructions, more readback of testimony, more talk from the attorneys, will that help you reach a verdict? Right. Here are some suggestions for you about how to reach a verdict to be successful, as some courts call it, which is very frustrating Very to me, problematic, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it suggests that not reaching a verdict is some sort of failure. Right. Uh, two people can go into a room and you're entitled to the individual judgment of, of those two people. You're entitled to the individual judgment of those 12 people. And so if the individual judgment of 11 people is guilty and the individual judgment of one is not guilty, then that's just what it is. It's just a, it's not a success, it's not a failure. And I'm very sympathetic when the jury after, you know, the attorneys do all their work and the jury after, you know, two hours says, We can't reach a verdict. You know, it's, you know, just we we are agreeing to disagree right now. I understand when a judge will say, "Okay, go back in, you know, try a little harder. Right. Uh, Sometimes it's after a couple days. Yeah. You know, maybe two days, three days. But in this case, this jury, they were deliberating on some days, 12 hours a day.
1: For several days.
0: When they come to you after 40 hours of deliberation and say, we can't reach a verdict, it seems like they've done what they can do. Yeah. You know, without without me knowing more about kind of the inside nitty gritty, it seems like 40 hours of deliberating. is a good time to call it but he didn't the judge sent them back in right and then they're and, kind of captives, you know.
1: Yeah, that's that's the concern that I've had in prior trials of mine where I've had juries come back to a judge and say, "Hey, we're deadlocked. We've tried the best we can. We've we've done everything we can, but we're not going to be able to reach a verdict in this case." And for judges to kind of disrespect that that uh, the autonomy of the jury and their and their thoughtfulness and their maturity and by sending them back. Ultimately, I've I've had the concern that the jury will then not reach a decision because of what has actually been proven or not proven during the trial but will reach a verdict because they think either implicitly or explicitly that their only way out of that jury room is to reach a verdict. And typically, in my experience, that works against us and works against our clients. Because I've had two trials where I've had healthy jury splits of like nine, three, eight, four. We didn't know which way they were going. Judges have sent those juries back over my objection. And these were after several days of, of deliberations. And then those juries both, both came back guilty on my on my guy so three to four people kind of miraculously but not so miraculously uh, decided to flip their votes after they had been kind of holding steadfast for several days. And so this uh, Cosby judge it it was scaring me that that this jury would be would be feeling pressure to reach a verdict because the judge wasn't letting them go. That's not what we want from our justice system. We don't want ju- juries making decisions based on time pressures or based on uh, coercion from a judge or from the bench that like you said that a verdict is successful whereas a hung jury is unsuccessful or that their only way home is is by reaching a verdict. That kind of max against our notions of of due process and jury and the autonomy of juries
0: yeah you you never want a jury making a decision based on something other than the facts and The the law right that that's the i mean that's what it has to be for this to work out and we say that as defense attorneys that means the presumption of innocence the burden of proof how to interpret evidence you know all the rules that are well settled plus the evidence and when you get a circumstance, a situation where you could have the jury deciding not based on the facts of the law, but on the situation of their deliberations, right, you know you, you get a very it's a very dangerous position to be in. I yeah. mean, it's one of the reasons why Friday afternoons as the start of jury deliberation are sometimes, you know scary because it's like, okay, well, if they, we just deliberate for, Let's let's get it done before the weekend. Let's finish it before so we don't have the have to weekend. Come back next week. Right? Yeah, that's not a decision that's based on the facts or the law. It's based on something else, the yeah. situation. And so, um, yeah, it's it, it was interesting reading. The New York Times surveyed a bunch of criminal law experts to talk about you know what their takes were mm-hmm. and. One of the uh, people, a prosecutor who handled the Jerry Sandusky case, he really had a frustrating take for me. One of the jury questions during their deliberation that I think we should talk about is, you know, it was almost, it was getting close to the end of the deliberations or, you know, it was over 40 hours and the jury sends a question, what does reasonable doubt mean?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And after a week, a full, you know, full weeks of work, of work, asking what is reasonable doubt, to me, that could be a really great question or it could be a really frustrating question. Right. I, I, you know, And one thing I'm certain of is you can't take away anything about what that means for the distribution or the numbers. Like without, we, no one knows what the split was. Do you know what the split no, was? No, they I, haven't announced it. Yeah, I was looking for it. I don't know the split and I think they have not announced it and the judge told them, you know, you don't have to talk about any of your deliberations and right. they'd ask you not to this uh, prosecutor was saying, well, that question means that it was 11 to 1 for guilty. And my, and just I had to, you know, I thought I should say somewhere. Right. I thought, okay, well, I can say it on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, because nobody listens to me anywhere else. Is that's based on nothing. Right. The idea that you could infer some number, 6-6, 10-2, 11-1, from a specific jury question is madness to me. Yeah. It, it is, it's based on nothing, It's total confirmation bias. You know, like if... You, were to, you know, if one person were saying, I'm going to vote for conviction, even though I have all these reasonable doubts, right. and they got the question, yeah. you know, they would
1: ask the same question. Right. So... Yeah, I never try to extrapolate too much from jury questions anyways. It could be one person asking a question. It could be all 12. It could be two. It could be four. And... It could be and, an offhand remark. Well, what right. about this? Yeah. You know, that and just you know, a, a curiosity that, that uh, one of the juries, jurors has. Yeah, it would, that, that was interesting. It was also interesting to me was I started to feel really upset at this judge, like I said for keeping this jury deliberating and and kind of coercing them into reaching a possible verdict when instead of just letting them hang. But then when you start to read about the trial and the in limine or the pretrial rulings that the judge made, he seemed to be a kind of interesting judge because he made rulings that really impacted the prosecution and hurt the prosecution's case. And then he made rulings that helped, I'm sorry, hurt Bill Cosby's case too. He ruled uh, to only allow one other woman To come in and testify about her alleged prior uh, sexual assault at the hands of Bill Cosby and excluded um, many, many others. Like over 10. That were potentially willing to come in and testify as essentially prior, prior bad acts against Bill Cosby. On the flip side, you were mentioning that he, the judge, kept out uh, a witness who would have testified that the alleged victim in this case had made some sort of statement can you talk about that
0: Yeah so the judge excluded a coworker of the alleged victim she worked at Temple University and this coworker would have testified that the alleged victim told her words to the effect of I'm making this up and it seems like the judge's rulings were let's focus exactly on what her allegations were from 2004 mm-hmm. you know what what occurred According to her word, what statements that she's made to police officers about it. Let's not go full into 12 other women coming forward yeah. to testify against Cosby. To focus it so that same type of reasoning would say, well, let's not look at the alleged victim in this case's statements to other people. But that seems much more direct to me. Uh, as you know, if I'm trying a case and I have any witness who is going to testify under oath that the victim in the case the alleged victim admitted to making things up yeah i'm i might be structuring my entire defense around that witness right the whole plan the you know when you draw it up you know the closing the jury selection the opening it it's all about that one person right and so when that one person is excluded that can be a real backbreaker yeah and I'm sure the yeah.
1: DA felt the same backbreaking experience yeah. when all of the prior alleged victims were excluded too I'm sure they were heavily relying on the on on a judge permitting them to march these women into the courtroom and essentially just kind of bombard the jury with these Repeated alleged acts by by Bill Cosby, um, which would essentially corroborate and supplement the uh, testimony of the alleged victim in the current case. Yeah, they'd um, be
0: able to say it's not a he said she said; it's right. a he said she said she said Ooh, she said right. she said she said right. Like that. That is a really powerful argument, especially if the method of committing the crime right. is the same. You know, it's more than just he's a bad guy he's a criminal you know other crimes evidence is really dangerous like if you have a person who's committed uh, robberies and is then accused of stealing from a grocery store right sometimes it's difficult for a jury to hear oh, this guy's a robber and a thief. So even if there's not good evidence, let's convict him He's done it before. He must have done it again. That's exactly what our
1: evidence codes typically preclude. But in certain cases and with certain exceptions, prior bad act evidence is allowed. In California, it's allowed in sexual assault cases and domestic violence cases they've essentially carved out an exception for those things or where like you said where that prior bad act is used to show that like a modus oper- an mo for a particular type of uh, behavior or prove identity or knowledge or something like that um but so it was to this judge's credit he seemed like a mixed bag judge he was kind of he was even, you had a ruling in a lot of different ways uh, for, for both sides.
0: yeah, and I, and I think even though they're kind of different, like uh, multiple allegations versus the alleged victim in this case's own statements, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, there's noise in the case yeah you know and maybe who knows how reliable that co-worker right. was you know and maybe if the co-worker testified then 10 other things would have had to come in trial within a trial yeah and and so <laughs> you could see how somebody saying this case is all about this allegation right like what happened on this night
1: narrowing it down and
0: kind of focusing out all the other noise
1: um, well that to, to that point what's interesting too is how different the court of public opinion is compared to our actual court processes and trials that was one of the takeaways that i had from this whole process is that i felt generally speaking across the country that bill cosby had already been convicted in the court of public opinion that he was convicted of being a sexual predator you know a sexual assailant on all these multitudes of women, but there hadn't been a trial, like we started off the top. And here here we actually had a trial where one of these alleged victims was being scrutinized and, and her claim were being put to the test according to the laws that we operate within in a courtroom setting and how different it is and how much higher of a threshold there is in a courtroom setting than there is in the court, court yeah. of public opinion. Uh, ultimately, 12 jurors did not believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Cosby committed this crime. It doesn't mean he didn't do it. it yep. just means it hadn't been proven. It doesn't mean that he's not a sexual offender or sex offender or that he's not um, a predator a predator. Yep. it just means that it wasn't proven in this court of law.
0: It's you know insofar as there's the theme for this episode because we're talking about Philando Castile later and Bill Cosby now. One thing that we've talked about is the significance of verdicts. Yeah. So the significance of not-guilties, the significance of guilties, and the significance of mistrials. What meaning uh, to take yeah, from them, right? Wh- yeah, what What do they mean? And one of the things that we've been noticing is, well, if Bill Cosby is convicted, then that means something for people who are victims of sexual violence. Right. But then if he's acquitted or if it's a mistrial, then that means the opposite. Right. Or you know that, that 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 this sends a message that alleged victims of sexual violence are not to be are not being taken seriously or that they are being vilified instead of being supported. And and I think that we want to push back against that. Yeah. We want to push back against that because a trial is twelve random people selected from the community, two attorneys or more, right. attorneys of Random quality. The facts are collected by police officers in the course of imperfect investigations. Then a judge makes all kinds of calls about what can be heard and what can't be heard. Right, and then for legal reasons. And then there are all these rules that
1: govern the jury's thought processes, the presumption of innocence the burden of proof not reviewing anything outside of the trial right proof beyond a reasonable doubt
0: it becomes this very closed insular universe really artificial like really really like um it's like this structured thing you know it's carefully built
1: it's carefully built and it's built that way for a reason is because we don't as a as a country have decided that we don't want outside influences to impact a jury's decision we don't want influences of sympathy or public outrage or whatever it might be to to, dis, to permeate into that jury deliberation room. We are asking our juries to make their decisions based on, the, like you said earlier, the evidence in front of them and the, and the law that applies to that evidence. And so it's really hard and we should be very careful not to extrapolate any sort of grand message from any particular jury verdict. And so when, when people or pundits say that because Bill Cosby was had a hung jury, That this somehow sends a message that sexual assault victims are not taken seriously by this country or if he had been convicted that that sends a message that sexual violence is now been is now condemned because bill cosby got convicted it doesn't it doesn't hold weight all these all these outcomes mean is did the prosecution prove their case or did they not and that's ultimately what it comes down to that's what i argue to juries in my cases I, i tell them you know when you vote not guilty in this case it doesn't mean that you are that you are condoning sexual assault or murder or a stabbing or a robbery or whatever pain that an alleged victim suffered all it means is that the prosecution didn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt there's no grander message not sending a message to anybody you're just holding the prosecution to their burden of proof and on the flip side the da can argue the same thing When they, if if they're asking a jury to convict our clients, they can argue, you know, their verdict doesn't mean that our client's a bad person, that uh, our client didn't have a bad childhood or whatever it might be. It's not sending a message about his humanity. All it's saying is that they've proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Simple as that. Why don't we
0: do our first chicka chico? Oh, wait, I can't do a reversing sound. <laughs> Rewind. That's, that's a readback. <laughs> yeah. So we're not gonna we're not gonna do this every episode, obviously. But there are gonna be times as we are now a uh, more frequently recorded podcast where some of our takes or some of the topics that we talk about uh, come back up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we wanted to introduce this uh, segment called readback, where we talk about. Uh, Kind of look back on something. So last week, there was a sentencing in Yolo County, which is where UC Davis, the city of Davis is located in California, a sentencing of a woman who we discussed at an earlier pod. She had committed a vandalism at a mosque uh, in the city of Davis. She had done all kinds of searches indicating terroristic type inclinations in terms of mass violence. Allegiances
1: to or like a, a admiration for Dylan Roof and, and some uh, exploration of, of mass murder and killing of people, things like that.
0: And so she's been held, uh, we've talked a little bit about the case, but she was sentenced last week. The sentence that she received was eight months county jail she received five years of formal felony probation. Uh, she received, as part of her probation, intensive psychological treatment. And she's also submitted to a restorative justice program where there'll be some structured effort for her to understand the harm uh, that she caused in the the mosque, at the mosque, to the community associated with that mosque. And it was, it was fascinating to see the judge's, part of the judge's ruling was he could send this woman to prison or yeah. to jail well the DA was, was asking for her to be sent it? to prison so because of the hate crime allegation for a vandalism you could go to prison right
1: i think the maximum exposure she was subject to was 6 years in state prison so let's let's back up a second second um, so just for for everyone's purposes what miss her name is Lauren Kirk Coelho and she got arrested back in in February and has been held in custody from February until her sentencing date, which essentially amounted to about four months of custody time. Uh, She had pled guilty or no contest to all the charges that she was charged with, the vandalism, uh, desecration of a mosque or a holy place with these hate crime enhancements, and essentially entered an open plea where the judge would decide what her sentence would be. There were no promises being made to her about what the outcome would be. And so all sides had fair opportunity at the sentencing hearing to make their pitch. Uh, her attorneys asking for her to be released on probation, the prosecution asking for her to be sent to prison, and then the judge was sitting there as the arbiter of, uh, of and making a decision as to what was in Miss Kirk Coelho's best interest, what was serving public safety, and ultimately I thought came down with a very reasoned uh, decision And part of the uh, sentence that she received was eight months in county jails, which which meant that she had already served her time. She got ordered released that day, which was last Friday. Uh, She had been ordered to pay full restitution to the mosque, which she had already paid for. Her family must have helped her or she might have had some funds. There's also a stay away order from the mosque, community service psychological counseling she also was ordered not uh she's not permitted to be on social media for five years which is a pretty significant thing when we think about how significant social media is to all of our lives whether it be linkedin or facebook or twitter our ability to connect with family friends get a job um, connect with the community uh, that she's not going to be able to have that uh, resource as part of her life for the next five years and on top of that, uh, the fact that she's being released on probation means that if she commits a new crime or if she violates her probation in any shape or form, she could still go back to prison for up to 6 years.
0: That's all that remains on the table for any bad outcome. Yeah. Like if she commits another offense, if she blows off her probation, right. if she that's doesn't going cooperate, to if she goes on social media. Right. That's the that's the consequence that remains. You know the sword kind of remaining over her and yeah way.
1: and and she's a convicted felon for the rest of her life and we know how that you know how that plays in terms of her ability to secure future employment, housing, financial aid, whatever it might be. And so the reason why this became an issue there were some in the community, Muslim and otherwise that were disappointed with this outcome and were saying that uh, Miss Kirk Coelho should have gotten more time. Well, there was a the DA that was asking for prison time, and there was Muslim community members and people in the Sacramento greater area, including a columnist from the Sacramento Bee, who believed that uh, she should have gotten more time, whether it be a year in county jail, or being sent to prison. And that's where my my uh, kind of spidey sense got raised and I got pretty frustrated, especially with the, me being Muslim, especially with some of the Muslim leadership that were, that were voicing this call for more jail time. So I started engaging these Facebook debates online a little bit and some of the folks said, well, you don't live here in Davis and you don't have kids that go to the, the mosque and what are we gonna tell them? and, uh, you know, we're still in fear, we think that she's a public safety risk, things like that. So I started to think about it, and the judge thought about it too. He was assessing what will keep this community safe while also um, help rehabilitate this woman. Ultimately, I thought his sentence was uh, a fair one that, that served both those purposes. There is nothing that I know of to indicate that her serving four more months in custody or another six months or another year is going to make her any less of a public safety threat. In fact, what we know about our jails and what we know about our prison uh, systems is that they perhaps entrench our clients further in their criminality or in the in the in the ment- in the attitudes or the belief sets that uh, that rooted in their criminal behavior. Our jail facilities aren't treatment facilities. They're not mental health facilities. They're not they're not equipped to do those things. And so if miss kirk Coelho was to serve any more time in jail arguably she would actually come out more of a public safety risk than than when she went in absent her getting the psychological and mental health treatment and empathy treatment Which, counseling that she's going to be receiving that, and while that, on probation
0: that's the big decider or you know the the biggest argument for me is the in terms of her public safety her well be, public safety and her well-being right is probation has more resources they have uh, they're more flexible options uh, to work with a person than parole yeah so if you have a court that has supervision so probation has six-year maximum as the strong deterrent you know in terms of motivating a person to comply with the requirements but they also have people who have mental health training they sometimes will have a mental health court in California associated with the supervision. There are options that probation has that parole doesn't have. Yeah. So when you're thinking about how do we get this person into a position where she can uh, successfully contribute to the community, not engage in any of this destructive behavior, having her on probation is better for her and better for the community. Like yeah. There's no question. And so then eight months or one year, Right. You know, is it, is she, and should we feel that this is a bad outcome if she gets out after four months of incarceration or after six months of incarceration? Like, we might not like that those, we might not like that parole doesn't have the resources to work treatment. And that's a conversation to have about maybe our parole should have better resources for reentry. They should. Uh, But probation right now absolutely does for a person who has a uh, bipolar disorder to work with that person yeah, and who has extensive community ties kind of in a position to succeed. And so the dangerousness, like she, she, there is no question that the judge I think said something like there's not, she's getting out.
1: Yeah. She's not going to stay in forever. She's getting out. So what are we, what are we going to do to help her and protect the community when she gets out?
0: That's the question. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's the question. And that captures the punishment, you know, that's appropriate for uh, her conduct, which is really harmful conduct. Yeah and 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 that's the other thing is
1: that one of the thing one of the, one of the other arguments that people were making um were was what kind of message are we sending about the conduct we are essentially saying that if you vandalize a mosque you'll go home free which was completely yeah, was bogus yeah. in the sense that she doesn't get to go home free like we just said She spent four months in jail. She has all these probation terms. She's subject to more time if she fails those terms. Uh, She's gonna be a convicted felon. So from a deterrence perspective, she's not going home free. No one is getting the message that she got off easy, that she's getting off light, that any future vandals are somehow emboldened to go commit hate crimes against mosques because she only got eight months in county jail versus getting a year in county jail. And nor is there any message being sent that this crime wasn't serious in fact this sentence sends the message that this crime was very serious especially because of the the felony and the hate crime enhancement and ultimately too the concern that i had with this the outrage over this sentence although it was on a smaller scale and the outrage that was that took over our country when it came to brock turner back in uh, back last year is that is this hearkening back to the metric of incarceration equaling justice like somehow that, that's ingrained in all, in all of us, that we equate the, the strength or weakness of a particular outcome in a criminal case based on how much time the person got. Did they get six months, a year, two years, four years? That somehow becomes our measure of justice. And it's not, it's not the appropriate measure of justice. We need to start kind of thinking the way this judge did and thinking holistically, what's gonna serve the community? What's gonna serve this person? Um, and what's going to kind of hold this person accountable, what's going to send the message of deterrence, all of these layers all encapsulated into a sentence that's not purely defined by how much time did they get.
0: What, when you wrote, you wrote an article about this that we can link to in the show notes, yeah. but you have this thing you say, it's, uh, we shouldn't be saying you do the crime, you do the time. Yeah. What What is it? <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote, uh, I'm you just going to throw you the lob. Yeah. I'm throwing, I'm, so I'm... We,
1: we've all ho- heard the adage, you do the crime, you do the time. And that needs to change to something like, you do the crime, you will receive a sentence, which may or may not include incarceration, that takes into account the gravity of the offense, the impact on the victim, public safety, your background and circumstances, and your re- rehabilitation. That's really the, you know, that's that's what needs to be accounted for in a sentence. You need a better acronym. Yeah, I know, you need, you know. it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, ultimately, I, I, my take is that I wish Miss um, Kirk Coelho well. And when we wish her well, I think we miss, we wish the Davis community well, generally. Um, I think it's, it serves a kind of dual purposes. And I really am challenging the Muslim community, and I wrote it in my piece, to especially these Muslim civil rights organizations, to really figure out their stance on issues of incarceration and criminal justice. Because when we have leadership folks from the muslim community or any minority group community that's saying jail time more jail time is the answer to hate crimes i think it ultimately is kind of speaking out of out of both sides of our mouths where we're calling for an end to mass incarceration on one hand but then relying on kind of the psyche of mass incarceration to ask for more jail time so we got to kind of figure out a consistent message uh, whether, yeah. whether it be Muslim organizations or, like I said, minority organizations that are trying to be on the front lines of civil rights and change in this country. It's,
0: it's hard because it, it, we feel sometimes so trapped that, you know, you have so few options yeah. that like our language is only incarceration language when we have nothing else. Right. Right. So I think that when I th- when I think about what a just outcome would be in this case, it would be it might be somewhat uh, looking back in some time. Yeah. You know, if the programming, the resources are sufficient, and the buy-in by this person is sufficient, and the community is able to heal, you know, and she's able to change her life in a positive way uh, because of this intervention, and this moment doesn't define her. Yeah. You know, but that this is the maybe the beginning of of a really significant change, then that will be a really great outcome. Yeah. Even if she got eight months instead of twelve months. Right. You know, and. And just one thing, I've I've seen multiple people respond on this subject to say, well, I would have liked for her to get some jail time. And I just, I think, you know, the fact that she's like released that moment can kind of trigger things for people and frame things. Uh, She, there was, incarceration was a piece of this sentence. Yeah. And it will, you know, remain a piece of the sentence. Uh, So anyway, that's that's our readback. Uh, (laughs) And uh, if you have any comments, uh, please come at Sajid on Twitter. Come after me. You want to come at him? <laughs> go at him on Facebook. He's ever He's on all the social media platforms. Ready. Ready uh, to respond. And please do check out his uh, his article. In this week's Deep Dive, we talk about the shooting of Philando Castile by Officer Geronimo Yanez. Officer Yanez was prosecuted and he was acquitted of manslaughter associated with the killing. What captured the shooting, I think, in the national consciousness were two things. Uh, First, it happened in close succession to other police killings. And the second thing was uh, his partner, Diamond Reynolds, uh, was present in the vehicle and his child was present in the vehicle and uh, Ms. Reynolds broadcast the immediate aftermath of the shooting on Facebook Live. Saj, do you see um, the Facebook Live video?
1: I did, when, when it initially came out. I mean, I, I, don't, I didn't see it live, but I saw it within a day, yeah, that same day. Yeah, you
0: didn't like log in to Facebook and watch right. it as it was happening, me right. neither. Um, and did you see, uh, so the trial happened uh, last couple weeks, And yesterday, uh, the video of the patrol car from the patrol car of the shooting has been released. And the uh, video of Miss Reynolds and her child uh, in the back of the patrol car has now been released. And Saja, I think we both have watched uh, the, the video of the shooting from the dash camera.
1: Right. I watched that yesterday. You sent it to me. And then it was obviously proliferating on social media. Got a chance to watch it. Put some headphones on on my laptop and watched it so I could hear the... The sound and uh, you know and, and and hear kind of the full scope of what what was going on um, that fateful afternoon or early evening. Yeah,
0: um, it's so. I mean, these these shootings are. I mean, we we look at them. We you know kind of we we watch these shootings happen, and and you feel like so many different things. We as public defenders who represent people who are. Uh, many times detained for no reason, arrested for reasons that are questionable. You see people, a person who looks just like your client, yeah. you know, a person pulled over for nothing significant, right? for BS reasons, you know, because yeah. his nose is shaped a certain way that might make him look like a robbery suspect. And then that person being killed. That's That's one part of this for us. It, it raises so many other factors. I mean, you've heard us on this podcast talk about the burden of proof and the presumption of innocence and how it's important for juries to make decisions based on the law and the evidence. And then, and also we've talked about not guilties, not guilty. Sometimes we come away really energized from them, uh, you know, in this way that's kind of unusual. Right. But then you have a trial happen with an officer. So officers are on trial for harm. They committed against people who are kind of we associate with our client population, yeah. people pulled over for no reason. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, so I wrote a blog post to try to unpack these thoughts, because so many thoughts were floating through my head over the weekend after the verdict, um, where Officer Yanez was found not guilty. And I was just trying to process like what I was feeling because there was this confluence of pain and sadness, but also um, from a public defender perspective, thinking about what it would be like to represent Officer Yanez at that trial, um, what our approach would be, why the case was a strong case or a weak case for for the defense, why it was a strong or weak case for the prosecution. My initial takeaway as we started off is just that, you know, rest in peace, Vlando Castile. It's just, yeah. it's ultimately so tragic. There's no reason why he is dead today. There's no good reason, no good reason for it. And in particular, what's really troubling as we think about this incident is the fact that he should never have been pulled over in the first place. From a legal perspective, the officer had grounds to pull him over, but from you know I don't I don't trust those grounds, or I don't I just don't feel I don't feel comfortable with those grounds because ultimately this officer was engaging in a form of racial profiling. Actually, it's kind of a classic version of racial profiling. He sees a black man driving, and believes that this black man, because of the shape of his nose, somehow fits the description of a robbery suspect, that in and of itself would never hold up in court for uh, permitting this type of stop. It's not enough to establish reasonable suspicion that Philando Castile was, in fact, that robbery suspect. But the cop was able to see that Philando Castile's brake lights, or one of his taillights was out. And essentially was permitted and sanctioned by law the united states supreme court had said in this case called wren uh, that um, that permits a police officer to pull someone over even if their reason is truly based in racial racially motiv- motivated or racial animus or racial profiling if they're able to kind of come up with or articulate some kind of objective, neutral reason, like a broken taillight for pulling that car over, they're allowed to do so. And so that's what permitted this officer to pull this car over. That's what created this stop is the United States Supreme Court allowed and sanctioned Officer Yanez to make the stop. And that's what created this encounter in the first place. That's what initially struck me is that this should have never happened. If our law, if our Supreme Court really uh, breathed meaning into the Fourth Amendment in in the way we would, we would want and hope. I mean, the court
0: thinks about, okay, what kind of Fourth Amendment do we want if they decide that we're going to suppress certain types of evidence under certain circumstances you know if they say if you stop a person for no reason walking down the street then you don't get to use the stuff you find on them in the court right when they say that they prevent officers from stopping people on the street for no reason yeah
1: it's a very direct impact
0: now when you say if you can come up with some nonsense reason but it's a reason for stopping a person some technicality yeah even though you have some other purpose like investigating a robbery right but you don't have anything on that it's total speculation conjecture yeah. and probably some bias oh complete uh, yes. bias i mean
1: the there i mean just to interject yep. here sorry yanez officer yanez i don't believe from what my, my review was able to articulate anything more about Falando castile other than his being a black male with this alleged wide set nose yeah and nothing more about his hair about his body type about his um, his tattoos, any other descriptors? No. The car, nothing. No. Completely bare bones description that he was relying upon, which was either explicitly or implicitly based on. Well, it's racialized uh, li- I mean, it's, ra- ra- it's, on on race.
0: It's it's yeah, looking at nose shape and and its association with right. race as a thing. Yeah. You know, so a black man with a nose a certain shape. Right. Is. So thin, it shouldn't even qualify. And whether he
1: could even yeah. see something like that yeah. from his vantage point is yeah. is is uh, likely very impossible.
0: And, but. but our court, as you've said, has made that acceptable. Right. And so, because it, it's what if it was just the guy who had the nose, then that's not good enough for a stop. No. And if it's not good enough for a stop, then the officer wouldn't have done the stop. You know, if they're right. operating, it kind would of never like have a, happened as a rational police officer. Right. Right. Which is what we have to assume. Because, you know, we're just not able to assume he would have gone rogue or whatever. Right. But, you know, there would have been some problem, you know, if, if the court says you can't do it and he did it anyway, then there would have been some review or some questioning of his conduct from like a Fourth Amendment perspective. But when you open the floodgate yeah. and say, officers, this is the sort of conduct you're encouraged to yeah. engage in. That's like a problem around policing that is not just the natural way of things, right? right? It's It's... An outcome of the way courts have made decisions regulating police conduct Yeah. that creates this—I don't know what the term is—like a dynamite type of situation where you're having these high-risk yeah, they're stops. powder powder kegs yeah, powder kegs. It's—I mean—so he's stopping the person in that moment. Let's just believe him for a moment that he thinks the guy is a robber, right? For total racialized asinine uh, reasons. Asinine reasons. Yeah. But he believes that. Now you've got him conducting a vehicle stop over taillights, right? You've got him talking to a person who then tells him, I also have a, respectfully, mm-hmm. I have a firearm on me, sir, I have to tell you that, and it's registered right. or whatever. Now it's like the, this moment the is The volatility so has just
1: increased tenfold. Okay. Yeah, and that's the thing. With these Supreme Court decisions, they, like you said, they permit these types of stops to happen, and then the odds just increase. The more stops, the more possibilities there are that these stops will result in some some sort of powder keg uh, exploding you more often that you and then you have not only that you have these police officers who are operating in this culture of, of essentially being uniformed warriors out yeah. in our communities you know they have the gun on their on their on their side they are they feel like they're in war zones they feel like they're 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 always at in danger and then they are essentially conditioned to not treat someone like Philando Castile as a fellow community member, but instead treating them as a suspect or seeing see, uh, seeing them from the outset of that type of encounter as a potential danger.
0: The threat to my life is happening all the time, right? And that and that is a truly felt threat. Like that's a truly experienced threat For by these officers. officers. Yeah. But Mr. Castile, he had nothing to do with that. That background. he suffered. That he ultimately he, he, died he had, because he didn't of, contribute to that. Right. You know, we have to, we have a lot to unpack with this, but. One of the things that I just came away from it with is, this is it's such a tragedy and there's the question of what should have happened in the criminal court right. and you know what evidence was considered in that stuff. And then there's just the question of, what could he have done? What could Philando Castile have done in that circumstance? If we're in a world where he could not have come away legally possessing a gun and surviving yeah. from that lawful vehicle stop, then we have a real problem. Right. We have a problem if a person who's lawfully possessing a gun Cannot do so without being killed. Right. That, like, that's and 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 for you know, our fears, our divisions, how alienated we are from each other. The ex, the idea that it's reasonable to consider this guy a robber who needs to be stopped. Right. You know, like all, all of it has to be, like, that's the main part for me about like how lost we are. <laughs> like you know, well, we, are at sea we are lost because
1: yeah. we we are at we are at sea in the sense of like i said these dynamics it's like this us versus them dynamic these police officers are out you know they're like they're perceiving dangerousness the community members are perceiving dangerousness from the cops it's this is really i mean that's not what we think of when we when we think of law enforcement we, we think of law enforcement as community service officers that are out here to protect or this is the way we want to be thinking about them is people that are out to protect the public to promote public safety to help us when we're in need when we're injured when we're stranded you know whatever it might be but that's not the that's not the community view generally especially for the minority community the black community of police officers and then the reverse of it police officers are supposed to be serving this this community but then they are looking at the the community that they're serving as as dangerous or as as suspects constantly it's this really ugly cycle that that is perpetuating, yeah. and I um, one of the things one of the solutions that I've read about is reorienting who we hire as our police officers. You know, instead of hiring the combative, the aggressive, the kind of the the brawny, uh, instead uh, seeking to hire police officers that have uh, empathy, that are compassionate, that are kind. Um, Seeking those types of qualities as opposed to qualities of the ones that I just stated, um, because we can start to peel back these divides that create these powder kegs that that happen in this case.
0: And who's put in, who's assigned a training position? Right. Like who's made a field training officer? Mm -hmm. Who's made a promoted to sergeant? Right. Who is able to succeed? Right. Like how are you evaluated? Yeah. Are you evaluated based on numbers of arrests or cases closed? Are you evaluated based on if you're able to not escalate a situation? Yeah, yeah, and like getting, if, getting yeah.
1: commended for de-escalating a situation, um, yeah. getting you know things like that. And the other thing, too, is re-evaluating, and I think this is in the context of our Supreme Court discussion and our case law discussion, is re-evaluating from a legal perspective and also from a police officer perspective from these department guidelines what they should be doing. What are are they asked to do? Are they asked to go hunt down or or seek out or unearth alleged criminal activity? Or are they being asked to be more responsive to discrete calls? You know, okay, there's a 911 call at this house for a domestic violence incident, and go to that house and, and investigate that and deal with that, versus, I'm going to be driving around on patrol and I'm going to be looking out for stuff to pop up. And that's where subjectivity and race and bias can rear its ugly head so much more often when police officers are given more latitude to essentially just kind of hunt for stuff to investigate and to uh, kind of drum up, drum up stops and things like that. So there are, there are some solutions maybe, but I don't know, ultimately we still have Mr. Castile debt and so that's what we're i think we're trying to unpack. Yeah. The other side of this too is the trial. And I, I think maybe we can transition to yeah. that. There are so many people, especially now that they've seen this dashcam video, that are saying, "What jury could have seen this video and acquitted officer Giannis? How could this have happened? You know, this is a complete miscarriage of justice." And so I started to analyze it from a public defender perspective and maybe we can engage in that for a second why why this jury reached the verdict that they did Um, and it goes back to our discussion with uh, Bill Cosby the fact that these juries operate in these insular closed universes operated by very specific discrete rules uh, especially the presumption of innocence the burden of proof and rules that govern self-defense. To me, when I looked at this video and when I read about this case, and I don't it's not in any way meant to be condemning Philando Castile or to exonerate uh, Mr. Officer Yanez or to sanction his conduct, but from a defense perspective, this was a pretty strong case going into the trial for Officer Yanez and it was a pretty challenging prosecution for the for against him. Would you
0: agree, disagree? So there are a number of things uh just to start so this is like a self-defense type case it's it's yeah it's you know square, it's square squarely there's no question that he uh, that yanez killed philando castile right no question about that there's no question you know it's not like an identification case or right. you know a it. the the question is why did he act the way he acted and was that justified under the circumstances right so self-defense is a complete defense to assaultive crimes to a homicide Mm -hmm. like if you kill somebody in self-defense then that's not a crime right and uh, the way that it's structured and the way that it must be structured because we have a presumption of innocence and a government with the burden the only way it can be structured is for the government to have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt just like everything else that the person was not acting in self-defense. Was not acting in self-defense. So the defendant, right. here the officer, was not acting in self-defense. That's the legal question. Uh, so the flip side of that, just to, yeah. uh, or the corollary to that is that if there is a
1: reasonable possibility that Officer Yanez was acting in self-defense, then he's to be acquitted. Yeah. It's, it's not that he was affirmatively acting in self-defense or that, he, that it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he was acting in self-defense. It's just that there has to be a reasonable possibility for him that he was acting in self-defense for him to be acquitted.
0: And, and it is difficult to prove a negative. Right. right? So one question is, did he act based on a fear yeah. that he experienced? and then was that fear reasonable? That's the key question because the
1: from a legal perspective is if he uh, acted in fear, but that fear wasn't reasonable, or if he used force that was disproportionate to the, to the um, imminent fear that he was, or imminent threat that he was experiencing, then self-defense doesn't apply. If, um, so meaning that yeah. if, he feared, if he feared that Philando Castile was gonna hurt or shoot him, but that, the jury found that that was unreasonable. They call that imperfect self-defense. And that's why the, the prosecution charged him with, with this manslaughter as opposed to, uh,
0: to some other it, more serious crime. And this is not a case that can be chalked up to the prosecution overreaching with the charges. It's not one of those cases mm, right, you know, where they charged right. first-degree murder, second-degree right. murder, and manslaughter right. hoping – which is kind of a cynical thing hoping that the jury would convict of the lesser thing right. you know, kind of setting up uh, an awful compromise yeah. this is a case where it seemed that they charged descriptively what the correct charge bucket right what this this these facts and this evidence would fit into yeah. if anything so you know understanding that the prosecution has the burden uh, to prove that he wasn't acting in self defense then okay question 1 did he experience fear Watching the video from the dash camera, uh, a couple things stand out. Now, Sajid had mentioned that the reaction that people had to the video was that it was a video of a murder, and it is the video of a person being killed on camera. Right. Absolutely. But as I watch it as a trial attorney who does criminal defense, I saw what I you know I believe would be keyed into by another defense attorney when Yanez stops Mr. Castile. He is apparently respectful and polite when he's talking to him uh, about hey this is why i pulled you over it's the third brake light not the second one i just saw it this way you know he's he's not engaging in abusive language before yeah he's not confrontational
1: it's not volatile at that at that point and then he's not aggressive
0: after the killing he is panting he's screaming he's saying fuck 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 yeah. he's saying get the baby out of here you know he's he's looks he appears to be been a panicked you know i mean the sort of condition that is circumstantially connected to fear fear right so we i think that fear is satisfied just you know watching that so then the question is was it reasonable when a gun is introduced into a situation that an officer is dealing with a person with a gun and by the way and so now you have is it reasonable and you have an officer telling a jury and with all of that that comes with that you know and i i think officers should be held to a higher standard because of their training because of their role in the community yeah but with that comes credibility oh yeah right the fact that we want our officers to always do the right thing and we hold them to a higher standard and we believe that if they don't do the right thing they should be punished in some way but they come in it's not a level playing field, right? They come in with a head start on credibility. They start on third base. Right or second, yeah, base. we talk about jury, yeah. talk
1: about that with juries. Yeah, and, all the time about police officer credibility and whether they're going to be able to evaluate a police officer's testimony in the same way they would any other witness. And many people say, no, I, I tend to believe police officers more than I would an average civilian because you know because of the things that you just said, training experience, their duties, things like that.
0: And think about it, if I'm if I've got a, a client who's in a bar fight and he's talking about why he smashed somebody with a bar stool, right? He's not an expert on smashing somebody with a bar stool. Right. Right, he hasn't gone through an academy about when to smash people with barstools and when not to smash people with barstools. He hasn't been through a training program and been subject to evaluations every year about whether to hit people with barstools. Yeah. Officers go through various training steps, so they almost testify like experts. Yeah. Like they have more expertise on use of force than the juries that they're testifying to.
1: What also gives context to his you know, his fear and whether or not that fear was reasonable because he can speak to his experience being in the field and how often, you know, perhaps people have pulled weapons on him, and I've or never used my gun before. Prior experiences, yeah. things like that, and so, um, you know, that's that is another factor that that kind of comes into play in terms of in terms of a jury evaluating whether or not that fear that Yanez had was reasonable or not. And then, like you said, when the gun is introduced into the mix, I thought about it. I mean, from from cases that we've tried, I've tried a couple self defense cases most often when my clients are accused of assaulting somebody with a weapon that person that they're accused of assaulting doesn't have a weapon in their in their hand or in their pocket and it makes it a really hard case for us to defend because here we have a scenario where our clients are either Using a deadly weapon or assaulting somebody who doesn't have access to or isn't holding a weapon, and if you if if we were to try a case where our alleged victim has a gun in their pocket or has a gun in their hand or a knife in their hand, that really enhances our self-defense and, claim.
0: And to add to it, there's a recording where our client immediately before using force says, "Don't touch the gun." Right. You know, indi- indicating that that's happening. Right. Even if the other person's saying, "I'm not." Right. It's a it's that powder keg yeah plus firearms and plus there I being mean, a gun in yeah. in,
1: the, in Philando Castile's pocket I mean that definitely is a game changer fact in for terms the criminal of, trial for for yeah. trial no I'm yeah. not, again not saying yeah. that he deserved it I'm just saying from a from a jury's perspective and from a defense perspective that is a significant fact, that I think a lot of folks in the community are overlooking in terms of how it ultimately play, plays out in a, in a trial setting. Yeah. Um, and that's the other gap here in this case is that we have the dash cam video, we have the video of Miss Reynolds Facebook living it, but the mo- at the exact moment in time in terms of Mr. Castile's um, actions, um, where his hands were, what his hands were doing um, right before he got shot. We don't have video of it's, that, it's, so it's really based on the testimony of Miss Reynolds and then the testimony of Officer uh, Yanez to to fill in that
0: gap. It does really feel though like if you have an officer tell a person, "Give me some information that's routinely in a pocket, like your license," right? And that person gives you the disclosure, "Oh, just so you know, I, I have a weapon," as he should. He, I mean, he, he does everything he should do, right? Right? And then so he's complying with the request. This officer escalated things. I mean, you know, there's the trial, you know, what we would say if we were handling the criminal trial, and then there's just, just the tragic escalation. Right. You know, like I mean, I, I think about reasonableness, right? And like was what the officer did reasonable? He's perceiving this threat based on a suspect a suspect in a robbery right. that we've already debunked. Yeah. Right? Was that fear reasonable or unreasonable? Yeah. He is but it's actually felt. Yeah. He is shooting his gun into a car with a little kid in it. Right. Like shooting into a car, moving or otherwise, is really problematic. Shooting into a car with a small child in it, yeah. Is is I mean, he got fired after that he was acquitted. Like right. the moment he got acquitted, he then got fired. Which, and that seems correct to me yeah. because of all of the things we're talking about. Well that
1: kind of goes to another point here is that we have this, this jury verdict, all it means, like we talked about with Bill Cosby, is all it means is that the prosecution to this jury, to these 12 people within this universe of the jury instructions and the presumption of innocence, self-defense instructions, the prosecution didn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what it means. Um, it doesn't mean that officer Yanez was in the right or that what he did, he should do again, or that, we're valid- that the jury is validating what he did, or that philando castile should, could have done anything differently or that he deserved to die um, so again it kind of goes back to our discussion that we had about bill cosby we have to be very careful about taking any grander greater message out of this out of this outcome um, and just because officer Yanez was not found criminally responsible doesn't mean that he's not morally responsible for the killing of a fellow human being that shouldn't have been killed doesn't mean that he's not going to be held civilly responsible because that's a lower standard of proof. Um, So there is a difference between criminal responsibility and criminal culpability and um, civil or moral culpability. And um, ultimately, I think that's where that's uh, something that needs to be recognized by the greater community that um, just because officer Yanez was found not guilty doesn't mean that he wasn't the right. It doesn't mean that he's not morally or civilly uh, culpable for what he did to uh, Philando Castillo. Yeah,
0: it's the the same point we talked about. It's a verdict is a, a discrete question that's informed by all kinds of factors, like which 12 jurors were selected. Yeah. You know which what the attorneys were able to do, and and uh, you know this is the point where, well, if the you know roles were reversed, you know and uh, or somehow you know why does the officer get the acquitted? Obviously, the officer was going to get acquitted. Yeah, and we want that. The answer is not to make a lower burden of proof. Right. The answer is not to have a, a like a civil like a lawsuit standard for criminal cases because they're no. too serious. You know, and and you know we say. Uh, we say that, uh, you know, well, we want a standard in a criminal case where many, many people can be, who are guilty of something or let go so that maybe one person who is innocent will not be held. Right. Right. That's, that's what we say or we talk about now, whether that's true or not, yeah. we have disputes, you know, maybe everybody is, uh, maybe that, that system is actually drawing in still too many innocent yeah. people, but, uh. We have a, such a high standard because the stakes are so high in criminal cases. Yeah. And they sh- and and we believe that they should be. I think when we reflect on what our values are about putting people into cages and having them be uh, convicted manslaughterers or, or murderers felons. or felons is that we have the highest standard for that reason. And right. and that's important to us. But when you apply it in an individual case, yeah, that is so painful. Right. Right like it's it's
1: not it's not a satisfying outcome i mean you know we want there to be accountability for police officers to uh, who kill and who brutalize and racially profile we want there to be accountability when when our clients or people like our clients or uh, people from uh, minority and impoverished backgrounds are assaulted and brutalized uh, so this is not a satisfying outcome in that sense uh, because we we as a community are so many in our community attached Uh, that accountability to this verdict. Um, And they feel like this police officer is not being held accountable because he was found uh, not guilty. But again, it doesn't mean that we should then ratchet down and say that uh, the standards should go lower because ultimately when we ratchet down those standards, then those standards end up, those ratcheted down standards get applied to our clients who then won't benefit from the same presumption of innocence and burden of proof and proof beyond a reasonable doubt standards that were in play in Officer Yanez's trial. I do agree that within this closed universe there is so much room for our subconscious and conscious biases to come into play in terms of Officer Yanez benefiting from his badge and from his uniform and the credibility that we as a community put into those uh, items, those his uniform and the badge. And then him benefiting from the degradation and demonization of black men generally in our community yeah. as violent, as thugs, as... How that made his conduct more reasonable. More reasonable. We're starting to take the top off of those myths. You know, Philando Castile being humanized as this beautiful school worker who touched the lives of so many kids. Officer Yanez uh, doing what he did and reminding people that police officers are they're human, human beings yeah. and that they make mistakes and that black people, black men are not all violent criminals, that they are fathers, that they're, they're school workers. And, and so I think that the next trial perhaps where the same kind of people are pitted up against each other, maybe those same biases won't be as in play as they yeah. as they may have been. We don't know how they were in play in, in uh, officer Yanez's oh. trial.
0: The circumstances that lead an officer to think he's in such Grave fatal danger when a person is doing exactly what they should be doing. Right. You could tell that Philando Castile had been given the talk by somebody in his life. Yeah. Right. Well, he'd been
1: stopped 40 something times, right?
0: Which is that, you know, just be respectful, just um, comply, and everything's going to be okay, but you're going to be held to a higher standard than other people. You're going to be stopped for no other, you know, for reasons that don't apply to other people. You're going to be unfairly singled out. And when that happens, just be respectful. Yeah. And then the talk that he had, you know, obviously had been given and was carrying out didn't work. Didn't work, yeah. And so, you know, the idea that, that maybe maybe some officers from this, you know, think, think twice before using deadly force right. when confronted with this type of situation. You know, that, that could save somebody in the future. Right. And, you know, the, then in the criminal trial, these trials, while they're based on rules— they still operate as some kind of marketplace for ideas, right? It used to be acceptable to make certain claims in domestic violence cases or in cases involving consent. You know, there are ideas that are, we would think, really backwards now. Right, right. We would think that they're wrong, you know, that, oh, well, uh, the woman would leave or something, yeah. you know, or, or in the area of, of sexual violence, you know, ideas about consent, you know, no means yes or whatever. Those incorrect and kind of pernicious ideas used to make their way into courtrooms. Right. right and we used to be acceptable ideas and it takes a process of kind of social evolution and kind mm, of values yeah. changing like just like ideas about punishment right. about community values ideas in criminal courts are going to change like, what is acceptable? What's reasonable? Yeah,
1: what's reasonable fear under these circumstances? Yeah,
0: What what is implicit in the kind of narrative that Geronimo and Yanez is telling that maybe is acceptable in this trial, maybe won't be acceptable in the future? And, right. and if it's not acceptable, maybe then it won't happen. Yeah. You know, that's the whole point. Yeah. It's not I like, about, yeah, you know, I mean, very it's very true. It's not about, you know, well, then they'll get a lesser, right? right? Or, right. or, you know, some evidence will be inadmissible, but maybe, maybe, maybe uh, it won't happen. Yeah. And, and I mean, one thing I watched, and I, and I, I think that, yeah, so I, I watched it, I felt very, um, I was just really sad. I, I watched, because I'm not that optimistic, you know, because I, I saw this small girl who's, you know, no bigger than my own kid yeah. telling her mom, so Diamond Reynolds was cuffed in the back of the patrol car. And her, she says, fuck, she, you know, she's just totally exasperated, just sure shocked. She's in shock. And her daughter, who's like three, you know, little, little small kid says, like, you know, mommy, don't cuss or don't swear. I don't want you to be shooted. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's the saddest thing I've ever – I mean, I don't think – like, this is – that young girl, I'm now thinking about her and I'm thinking about what kind of relationship does she have with police officers and with the state. Yeah. It's so awful. It yeah. feels so bad. Um, so I, I agree with your – uh, how we kick this off in terms of rest in peace Philando Castile and, yeah rest and, you in know, peace and, uh, yeah and definitely thinking about his
1: think, definitely thinking about his daughter um, and hoping,
0: hoping it's so for the sad best. yeah, yeah. alright well uh, I think we've dived deep enough yeah and uh, if you'd like to uh, talk to us about this or share your own thoughts we'd love to hear it please email us at adorinabetter at com or come at us on Twitter why don't we take a quick break and come back and do our things all set All right, we're back. Let's do our thing. Sajid, what do you got?
1: On a lighter note, Warriors. Second championship in three years. You know, who would have thunk that, that this day would ever come? Like, to not only win one championship, but two in three years. Pretty awesome. My thing is uh, Warriors championship 2017. KD came to play. This doesn't mean as much as the 2015 championship First to one, me, yeah. yeah. Because I was the first, and it, was, it felt like it was more organic. But it's still pretty sweet. And it definitely... Uh, was a is a nice distraction um, to all of this heaviness that we've been talking about.
0: Absolutely, it is total escape. So I
1: appreciate yeah. appreciate the dubs. Appreciate being in the Bay Area uh, during this pretty amazing time. That's my, my thing.
0: Yeah, my my thing is an interesting case that came out through the Supreme Court last week. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, there was a, a law in the state of North Carolina. Mm, yeah, and the law said that if you're a registered sex offender, uh, you can't go on any website that you know children to go on. So a guy who is a convicted sex offender posted on Facebook about how traffic court sucked, which is like a very common tweet or, you know, Facebook-type post. And then he wound up getting prosecuted for for violating violating that law because kids can go on Facebook. And so his post about traffic court led to a conviction. And the Supreme Court overturned uh, that state law because it was infringing on free speech expression it was it was overbroad kind of it's kind of interesting to think how these laws that make a lot of sense we don't want people to prey upon you know go to places where kids are in order to take advantage of them saying traffic court sucks yeah seems to be like a pretty common type of experience for everybody right even people who have certain convictions so uh their ability to vent about it on facebook has been uh restored yeah the other thing that is on the on the horizon at the supreme court in terms of criminal law is a uh, cell phone tower search whether officers have to get search warrants hmm. before getting a geolocation data okay you know what towers a phone is pinging off of And so I'm uh, prepared. We'll we'll talk about it. And it'll be our test for Justice Gorsuch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, We'll do another readback. Yeah, we'll do another readback. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening to Aider and Better. Uh, We will talk to you next time.
1: See you. I'm